It's great. It's great I need a 10-year-old to tell me where children's ministry is happening. Thank you. Uh, I think I'm okay. Thanks. If you have a Bible, and you do because there's one in the pew rack right in front of you, go ahead and turn it to the very end of Mark's Gospel. That's the second book in the New Testament. But if you don't know what a testament is, then it's about two-thirds of the way back through the Bible, or on page 1585. I do want to read this, even though I'm going to talk very little about it this morning. But I want you to actually see this page, partly because I want you to look at that line in the left column and what it says in the brackets under it. It says, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 to 20. You see that? That's what I'm actually going to talk about mostly this morning. But let's read the passage anyway, okay? When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen them, they did not believe her. Afterwards, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country, and these returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his words by the signs that accompanied it. Okay, there's a whole bit that was on that slide that's apparently not there. What I want, want to do this morning is I want to talk about the Bible. We're going to spend eight weeks on the gospel. We're going to be studying the gospel in the Bible. I think pretty much everybody knows that the Bible is kind of important in Christianity, right? Um, and so one of the doubts people bring either into their Christian faith while they're trying to be a Christian— or one of the doubts that keeps people from taking on Christian faith and believing the gospel is this question of, is the Bible actually reliable? Is it a reliable source of information about God? Um, and one of the questions within that question is the question of, is the Bible that we've got the same Bible that the apostles wrote? That's one of the questions inside the bigger question of, is the Bible reliable, right? Has the Bible been faithfully transmitted to us? Um, there's a verse in the book of Jude, verse 3. It only has one chapter. It says this, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith 
that was once for all entrusted to the saints. So that word can be translated delivered. So there's a faith, there's a body of knowledge or truth about Jesus that is the Christian faith that was entrusted or given to that first generation of Christians. And Jude says, listen, contend for that. It's important, right? But the question is, is the faith that was transmitted to the first generation the same faith or the same truth that's been transmitted to us in 2011? Right? That's an important question. Now, listen, I know that there are some people here who do not want to talk about this. You hear a history lecture coming on. You do not want your pastor talking about whether the, the Bible has issues. You just, want, you just want to know whether or not your Bible is trustworthy. Okay? So here, this is for you. Your Bible is totally trustworthy. Okay? So you can just relax and tune out for the next 40 minutes, and that's fine. But you can't get food early because that's not really going to open until 11. <laughs> One of the things that we need to recognize about faith in general is that there are only two kinds of religions in the world, okay? You can say lots of things, but in the nature of how people believe in God, there's only two kinds in the whole world. There's what you might call a received religion and a conceived religion, or um, a religion based in revelation or a religion based in enlightenment. For example, um, Buddhism, is that a received religion or a conceived religion, right? It's a conceived religion, right? The Buddha sat under a particular banyan tree and he received enlightenment of mind. So from within him and from within his consciousness, he realized something. He became enlightened, right? He didn't, he didn't receive written, clear do this, don't do that. This is what's true. This is what's false. He conceived it. And most of the far eastern religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, and the things that fall out of that are that kind of a religion. They're a conceived religion. They're, they, they think of it as a, a means of enlightenment. And so the, the problem that those kinds of religions face is cohesion. How do you get people to think anywhere near the same thing? Because everybody's experiencing enlightenment. Um, Buddhism and Hinduism have no authoritative texts. They have religious texts, but they're not authoritative at all. Right? The Hindus have the Vedas, the Bhagavad Gita. You've got, you've got Buddhist texts that are considered religious texts, but they don't have any right to bind anybody. If somebody, quote, if somebody in Hinduism quotes the Veda towards another Hindu Swami, the other guy goes, whatever. There's no, there's no authoritative relationship. So the problem that religions like that face is how do we get people anywhere near on the same page? They're very different. There's another family of belief, which is, which is religions that believe in revelation, that God actually speaks to humanity. That, that God is a being that does not want us to be totally um, confused and does not believe we can actually get out of our own minds what we need. And so God gives us what we need through revelation, right? And so therefore, the faith we have, we receive, we don't make up, right? Remember that place in Galatians where Paul says, listen, I'm, talk I'm not talking about something I made up. I'm talking about something Jesus said to me. You see the difference? And so the, the problem then becomes transmission. If God spoke it in a particular place in time, space, history to a particular group of people, how do you get it from one generation to the next? How do you get it along? Right? The, what happens is the faith usually gets inscripturated into writing, and then that gets passed along, and that's the faith. And so if you don't have a faithful inscripturation and transmission, you got a huge problem if what you believe in is a revealed religion. Got it? So this is really important. Now, it's, it's important for Christians, obviously, because Christians should be asking the question, 
can I trust the Bible? Can I trust its promises, instructions, demands, and encouragements? Can I? But it's also, listen, it's also just as important for non-Christians, even if you don't think it is. Because implicit in the whole claim of the Bible being God's Word is, there is a question of, should you trust the Bible? If you don't believe, should you trust in its promises? Should you enjoy its encouragements? Should you have to respond to its demands and commands? And the, the longer ending mark is a perfect place to talk about this, about what the Bible is and what should be in it, because the longer ending of Mark isn't part of the Bible. And so this is a great time to talk about how we got what we got, why we have it, and what that means for how we understand the Bible. Okay? So I want to go through 14 points. I'm just kidding. <laughs> about that. Um, I just want to know who is with me. The first is, um, that we, we need to know our doctrine of Scripture. Our doctrine of Scripture is not that the NIV English translation of the Bible is the revealed, inspired Word of God and therefore inerrant in the Zondervan publishing. That's not what Christians believe about the Bible. No Christians ever believe that, obviously. And, that's, and, and so if somebody attacks that view and says, hey, you know there's stuff in your Bible that's not really in the Bible, you can just shrug your shoulders and go, dude, whatever, that's not even my doctrine of Scripture. You, you, you might not say dude, but whatever you would normally say to someone. Um, but the frustrating news about this passage is that verses 9 to 20 are, are really almost certainly not the authentic ending to the gospel Mark actually wrote. But the reason that doesn't affect our doctrine of Scripture is that when you look at—oh, wait. Oh, this is, this is the—okay, the, the, let's go to the next one and then come back to that one. This is High Point's Doctrine of Scripture, and the reason I use it is so you know what our Doctrine of Scripture is, and because it's almost identical to virtually all evangelical churches in America. But it says this, We believe that the Bible, consisting of the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, was given by the inspiration of God and is the inerrant Word of God in its—see that? Original manuscripts. Meaning, we believe that the Mark Mark wrote is God's inspired Word for us to teach us about the gospel. So if this passage isn't in the Mark Mark wrote, if somebody goes, hey, don't you know there's something in your Bible? It doesn't matter because our doctrine of Scripture is, well, then if it isn't in the Mark Mark wrote, well, then it, it doesn't affect our doctrine of Scripture at all, right? It's actually a great thing that that little clause is in there to tell us whether or not it's in the original manuscripts. Now, one of the reasons that's important is because, okay, this is, this is Greek, okay? And this is the end of Mark, okay? Now, this is— and I'm going to explain this in a minute about this whole textual criticism gig. Anyway, but you see this A right here? That means that it is A likely. There's A, B, and C. Okay, A is super likely. B is pretty likely. And C is, you know, flip a coin. It could go either way. Okay, and so A means the shorter ending of Mark is almost certainly the ending. And it ends with the name Jesus. Okay, now it's theoretically possible that the other shorter ending that ends with Jesus, who is the Savior, amen, is the original ending of Mark, right? That's possible. And all these very early manuscripts state that. And there's very little early evidence that anything longer than that is part of Mark's original gospel, okay? Now, why does that matter? So then you have to ask the question, okay, wait, wait, wait. If that's the case, then is my Bible actually reliable? Um, because it's very common here, and of course, the more academic, the more educated, the more secular a city you live in, the more you bump into this, right? I mean, surely, I mean, li I mean, living in the Bible Belt in Panama City, I ran into this a pretty good bit. But 
but definitely living in places like Madison, you're going to run into this a lot. You're going to run into people who say that, um, don't, don't, I mean, don't you realize that the Bible you have is terribly corrupted from years of translation upon translation upon translation. Some of the things that were said are totally mistranslated now. We don't even have any idea what the original authors actually wrote. I mean, what you have is some like updated King James Version, which was, you know, translated by some divorced guy who broke away from the Catholic Church and killed whoever he didn't like. I mean, surely you understand that that book that you have is a nice relic from the past, but it's really not in any sense reliable or accurate. And so the idea that you can call it God's Word or something is a little bit, I don't know, head in the sand, unacademic. It's a little ignorant and probably really foolish and so forth, right? And then the conversation's over because, of course, then, you know, where do you go from there? It just disqualifies anything that's in the Bible, right? Here's the, here's the problem. The problem is that um, that's just all not true. So it's, it's, its relationship to effective rhetoric is really good. Its, it's relationship to fact is, is, um, is, 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 pretty, is pretty bad. Um, and I, I don't mean to be mean about this, but I don't think, this is something that you shouldn't feel intimidated about, about. Okay, that's why I'm telling you this. I do not want you to go out into the secular city of Madison and be intimidated about the history of the Bible, because you shouldn't be. Because it's not up for debate, and it's not even close. The history of the accuracy of the transmission of the New Testament is embarrassing for us. It's embarrassingly good. It is, it is so far beyond any book from the ancient world that it's ridiculous. And the arguments of its textual veracity are total non-starters to the point where the science of textual criticism, which is looking at the actual non-speculative physical evidence of manuscripts, is a virtual dead science because there's, there's, no, there's no fun. It's, it's simply a boring science because what it ends up teaching us about the history of the New Testament is so absolutely one-sided. If you look at—okay, let me, let me move a little forward. Some, sometimes people joke about um, why a lot of pastors go to school as long as doctors. The first answer is, I have no idea. Um, but the second is, this is some of the stuff we have to do. But the sad thing is, is because it's a little academic-y and people start glazing over whenever you talk about history or whatever, and you don't know till the end of the sermon how helpful it can be when your faith gets attacked— or when you, you flip on that ABC special that handpicked that guy with a really interesting Oxford accent that's going to tear about the part of the Bible in 20 minutes, you know, that, or the, on the History Channel, it, you go, you kind of glaze over, and, you, and so pastors don't talk about this stuff, and so you end up not knowing any of it, and it makes your foundation really weak, even if you have nice siding. You know what I'm saying? Um, one of the things that we don't talk about, but that is— has been enormously helpful is what we call this in, in biblical studies, the science of textual criticism. One of the things that's fascinating about the Bible is the farther we get away from the original documents, the more reliable the Bible is becoming, which is, this, which is really cool. The Bible that we read today is more accurate to the writing of the original authors than the church was reading in the fourth century. Now that is historically astounding. You would think the further you got away from the historical event itself, the less reliable something would be. 
But it turns out that's not the case. Because of the development of a science called textual criticism, so I want to tell you what that is, okay? So you've got to hang with me for like five minutes of this, okay? Are you ready? So grab the pew in front of you. Put some gum in your mouth to increase your brain activity, and let's just do this for a couple minutes, okay? Um, textual criticism is basically the science of comparing manuscripts of the Bible to each other to make sure that the Bible we have is the Bible as it was written. Or you could say it this way. It is the systematic method of determining the most reliable reading of each passage of Scripture by applying the physical evidence, meaning actual manuscripts. So not speculative, like, oh, would Mark really say that? I don't really think so. I think he would say this. And there's this whole—that's called higher criticism, as opposed to lower criticism. Lower criticism looks at physical evidence, right? It's the kind of thing engineers like. Higher criticism is a little bit more speculative. and liter- It's the kind of thing English majors like, Okay? Um, I think I've been pejorative enough. Um, and so what I'm talking about is lower textual criticism, where you actually look at physical evidence and you're dealing with facts, okay? Um, and so what, what they do is they compare these manuscripts. And, because here's the thing. There are thousands of New Testament manuscripts. None of them agree with each other with every letter, right? I mean, think about it. If we were all living in a monastery in 527, okay, and Steve Tadovich was the headmaster monk. And we decided to commit three months to copying the Bible, right? And so every day for six hours, we would all come in here. We all had a piece of parchment and a pen. And Steve would stand here and he would read the Bible letter for letter. Then Jesus, and all of us copied it down. Then Jesus, right? Do you think if you copied down this whole book, that you wouldn't make any mistakes? You would make some mistakes. And then if Steve made a mistake, we'd make 500 mistakes, right? And so, but you might just put an E on the end of something, or you might just misspell a word, or you might skip a couple of words because you were daydreaming, because your, you know, desert slab wasn't real comfortable the night before. You know, who knows? <laughs> right? And so what, so what, ha- so here's what happens. See, the, the, the early Bibles, they could only compare the manuscripts that they could get their hands on, right? There weren't airplanes. There was not an internet. You couldn't take digital PDF photographs that OCR'd them and then create— I mean, you, none of that was possible, right? So if somebody wanted to compare Bible manuscripts, they had to go out and find them on ships to places where there were new diseases they didn't have antibodies for. And it was not like now, okay? And so they would go out and they'd get— you know, if you got 10, 12, 13 different manuscripts, that was a lot, right? And then you compare them, and people like Jerome and Origen from the second century, they did that, and they did a great job, but they only had 10 or 12 manuscripts, right? Listen, we've got 5,400 just Greek manuscripts now. You see, in about the middle of the 1800s, archaeology turned from a glorified treasure hunt into an actual science of finding things and figuring out why the heck they were there and what that means. When that happened, it fundamentally changed history as we knew it, so especially in relationships to texts. So what happened was, biblical texts being found in Turkey, Egypt, Arabia, basically anywhere that was dry enough for them not to rot, started pouring into England in a way that had never happened before. And so all of a sudden, like, boom, middle of the 1800s, something happened that had never happened in the church in its history. 
Right at the time when the Bible was being attacked the worst by continental European philosophers, God was providing through this growing science of archaeology evidence that would undo many of the things that they were beginning to say. It was incredible providence. And so what happened was these people started going out, and, and they found these manuscripts. They come in, but see, before the, before the, um, before planes and stuff, I mean, can you imagine what this was like? Like there's, um, let me skip ahead for a second, and I'll go back to this. So the most important New Testament manuscript was found in 1844 by a guy named Tischendorf. It's called Codex Sinaiticus. And um, it was found literally at the foot of Mount Sinai in the middle of the desert at a monastery called St. Catherine's. Um, it was believed in much of monastery life that manuscripts for the Bible were like flags. When they got really bad, you recopied them, then you destroyed the one before it because you're supposed to show respect for it. So Tischendorf shows up, and the monks are starting, starting the evening fire with these, this old codices. It's this thick, it's like that. And, but it's, and Tischendorf, and he realizes this is a Bible manuscript. It ultimately gets dated to the fourth century. And it is the whole, virtually the whole Bible. And it became instantly one of the oldest manuscripts we had to work with. And that happened for a good bit of the 1800s. Then one of the most important finds for the Old Testament was found in the 1940s. Right? 1940s, some shepherds in the desert, he starts throwing rocks. He hears something break up in a cave. He climbs up there. He finds the Dead Sea Scrolls. The first physical evidence of the Old Testament from before Christ that we've had to look at for a very long time. Such that we could show that the passages that we Christians have always believed referred to Jesus very explicitly, like Isaiah 53, read just like that 200 years before Jesus was ever on the scene. So nobody could really argue anymore that they, any, they could have gotten changed in any way. And that all happened fairly recently. So if you go, well, why are these in the Bible, right? I mean, why would—and here's the, here's the problem. There's only like two or three passages that are in the Bible that shouldn't be in the Bible. Okay, it's just a few. But here's the problem. It's our favorites. <laughs> and I mean, listen, I hate to do this to you, but I want you to know, okay? Because I don't want somebody to sneak up on you with this, okay? Here are, here are the ones. So this is the Lord's Prayer. When I grew up as a Catholic boy, I could not figure out why when I went to my Baptist grandparents' house, the embroidered version of the Lord's Prayer on the wall had at the end of the Lord's Prayer, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Because in the Catholic Church, we didn't say that. Okay? And later I found out that, that the Catholic Church might be wrong about some things, but this wasn't one of them. Because if you look at the manuscript, so this is an NIV Bible. This is the one I read. And at the end of the Lord's Prayer, it doesn't have that verse in there. But it says down at the bottom, some late manuscripts have this. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Meaning what? That where that shows up is in manuscripts copied much later. So it showed up at some point. Some very pious scribe apparently added it and other people thought it was a great idea and off it went. But it isn't in the earliest, most reliable manuscripts. So they took it out just like they should, right? Secondly, okay, the woman caught in adultery. I'm sorry. Look, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know you love that story. I love that story. But the, you know the woman kind of, they're going to stone her, and Jesus writes on the ground, and he's like going, you know, he, he who, you know the verse, he who has no sin be the first one to throw a stone? It's not really in the Bible. 
Okay, listen, you can still quote the whole, uh, you know, if there's a speck in your eye, your brother has a— I mean, there's still lots of don't judge kind of like verses, okay? So fear not. But, you know, you can—listen, you can still make people feel guilty for pointing out your sin, even if it's loving, okay? So you can still use the Bible to hide your idolatry. But this verse isn't in the Bible, um, it just isn't—it just isn't in the earliest, most reliable manuscripts. Now, listen, that does not mean it didn't happen. Okay? It doesn't mean it didn't happen. There might have been some true story, tradition out there of something Jesus really did, and then it got put in somewhere, and then it kind of—I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm just saying it's not in the John John wrote. And our doctrine of Scripture is that the John John wrote is inspired by God and therefore authoritative for us. Do you understand? So that's kind of sad that there are some of our favorite ones. But, but here's, here's one of the applications of that. Here's, this is one of the reasons why it's important that you have a modern translation of the Bible that has good notes in it and that you actually read those notes. Because if you have that, then you'll know this stuff. And when people attack you about it, you already know it. And what, and what you can say to them then is you can say, listen, here's one of the things I love about Christianity. We're just honest about this stuff. We just write it right there in our Bibles. It's, it's not a problem for us. And we, we believe facts are our friends. I mean, we're not going to fight against, fight against this stuff. What's true is true, and we're going to embrace it. And you may think that we like to stick our head in the sand about facts, but here's the, here's the problem. I'm not sticking my head in the sand about the history of the Bible, but you might be. Because when you take all of the physical evidence that we have accumulated from all of history, and there is a pile of it, and you compare it to each other verse by verse and line by line, what we have is an extremely and embarrassingly well-transmitted holy book. So that the, the things that you've memorized and picked up off the History Channel and ABC specials and blah, 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 and heard in some graduate class, probably from a professor that doesn't even have training in biblical studies— isn't true. You put it in your brain because it came from an authority source and you actually wanted to believe it. Because the fact is, is the idea that the Bible is authoritative and well transmitted is a little bit terrifying if you don't want to follow Jesus. Because the one who did everything for you could ask anything of you. I think we covered that one. So, okay, so here's what, so you might go, okay, so look, Nick, why are they even in there then? That's just confusing. Here's why. Because people in the church would riot if they were taken out. Okay, that's, that's the real reason. You see, in 1611, when the King James Version was translated um, by Wycliffe and then Tyndale was really—William Tyndale was the, was the main scholar in charge of that. He had what we call the received text, or in Latin, the Textus Recepticus. This is one of the reasons why there are churches out there, fundamentalist churches, that think you should only read the King James Version. I'm going to get to that in just a second. Um, what, what they were doing in 1611 was they, they were taking all the manuscripts that they had, and they, if there was a variant, like it said one thing in one version and one thing in another, what they did is they just counted up how many manuscripts said this, and how many said A, and how many said B, and whichever one had more, they just used that one. So it was called the majority text, meaning everywhere there was a question, we just take the majority. And so that's how the King James was translated. So these, these passages are in more manuscripts than they're not in, Right? And there's some people who believe that's just the way you ought to do it. Now, later on in, in the 1800s, there were a couple of Cambridge scholars who said, no, wait, wait, wait a second, wait a second. If something gets miscopied in 525 AD, 
And then everybody in that monastery copies it, and it goes out to every monastery in France, and everybody in those monasteries copy it, and everybody in those monasteries copy it. Then you really just have all these other—you're just multiplying errors. And if an error happens in a place where people are particularly adept at making copies— as opposed to another place where they, they don't do that a lot, what you're going to have is you're going to have errors ending up being in the Bible when they shouldn't be. Sometimes the right reading is going to be in the minority, right? And so these two scholars named Westcott and Hort— Oh, by the way, if you want to read more about this, this is, the bo- this is the book that I would recommend, from text to translations by Paul Winger. Just a little aside there. Where are we? Okay. So what these guys did is they said, listen, here, we need to break them up geographically. Because they got copied geographically, right? They'd go out over here, they'd go out over here, then they get copied and copied and copied and copied. So if we break them up geographically, we can break this down a lot more scientifically. And if we weigh them by how old they are, it makes sense that older ones would have more authority than newer ones because if you make a mistake, it's going to be in the newer ones and less in the older ones. So we got to weigh old more than new, and we got we to split it up in terms of regions, and that'll get us a better data set, and we can go at this more scientifically. So they did. And that's how we got the first textual apparatus of what's called the Westcott and Hort version that did it this way, which is much more scientific, much more clear, I think much better. And so if you do it this way, those passages, though they're in the majority, meaning they're in later manuscripts and in a few more, when you go to the earliest and most reliable ones, they're not there. Which if you just think about it, would they erase it in the earlier ones or would it get put in the later ones? Right? It's pretty simple logic, right? And so when this was done— people began to realize that, oh, some of these passages were not in the originals. And what are, we, what are we trying to do? We're trying to come up with the closest thing to the autograph, right? We're trying to get to closest to the thing that John wrote, that Mark wrote, that Paul wrote. And so it doesn't matter how much the church likes the story of the woman caught in adultery, right? What matters is, did John include it? And the answer is, sadly, for that story, in my sentimental opinion, no. But the reality is, is that God did, the Holy Spirit did not inspire John to include that story in that place. Where are we? Okay, so Nick, if, if, if that's all true, why exactly is this supposed to build my faith? What you're telling me is essentially what I'm, what I'm reading between the lines here. There's thousands and thousands of variant readings in the Bible manuscripts. And that should make me feel like I can be confident about the Bible's transmission because why? Right? Because if you haven't been listening the whole time, just little bits, you can feel that way. And here's why. Because when you actually go through the process of comparison, it's dead obvious in virtually every case what the right reading is because there's thousands of manuscripts. And the process of textual criticism ultimately creates two things that are—well, three things that are extremely helpful. I have a slide for this. One is, it makes painfully clear how um, reliable the biblical text that we have is. The biblical text that we have in modern English translations is enormously reliable. Secondly, anywhere where there's any question about the reliability of the Bible, we know. Which is kind of cool right? If, if there are any weak spots, you want to know where they are, right? That's true. It's, and it says it right in your Bible. You don't need to know Greek. You don't need to go to seminary. All you can do is buy a modern New Living or NIV or American Standard Bible. It's right in there in English. They just tell you straight away, right? Which is sweet. 
And here's the third thing it does. It inoculates you against the common conspiracy theories about the Bible. Because frankly, the only, thing, the only way attacks on the Bible will carry any weight if you know anything about the text of the Bible's history is if you buy into conspiracy logic. The idea that there's no evidence for this, but, you know, people are like this, so therefore this must be true. Right? Um, but if you, if you, if you, anyway, I was, I'd make a pejorative joke there, but I'll just leave that alone. Um, so I think those are three very helpful things for us. To know that we can walk away from this and we can recognize that our Bible is extremely reliable. Let me give you one con- contra example to this. And I'm going to try to be discreet in how I say this so as to not be real pejorative towards the other faith. Okay, there's another faith that is a revealed religion that has a holy book that, that went about this a little differently. About, um, about 80 years after the origin of, the, of that faith, um, it became known that there were variants in the scriptures of that faith across the span of area that it was growing into. And they, they, had, a, they had a more focused faith about the absolute inspiration of their scriptures. So they just said, this can't happen. So what happened is that in the central power of that, they said, everybody send your copies of the scriptures to us. And what we're going to do is we're going to solve this problem um, so that everybody can know what God's word is. And so people sent in their copies. And what they did was they put a couple of scholars in charge and they created an authoritative version of their holy book. And then they burned all the other manuscripts. And then they sent out the authoritative one to everybody. So everybody would know their book had never had a variant reading. It was totally perfect. There were no errors. And everything would be great forever and ever. Amen. Here's the problem. Not everybody trusted the central authority. And so there were major important scholars in that tradition that didn't send in their holy books. And there had already been commentaries written on the holy book which discussed which reading was right and which reading wasn't right and the spiritual implications of each. So the problem was enough evidence had survived to show that there were problems in the holy book, but no data was left to restore the text. So for the most part, they just say it didn't happen. And I am so thankful that that's not what happened in the church. I'm so thankful that in God's providence, he allowed us to be possibly embarrassed by variant readings in these manuscripts, but yet ultimately in his providence to bring out of that weakness the strength of the biblical text we've actually got. That's really pretty sweet. And because all those variants exist, it demonstrates the honesty of the whole procedure. They're all just right there for the whole academic and otherwise world to see. They just lay out there in front of it. But when you go through a pretty standard open process of comparing them, it produces a text that is 100% reliable. Okay, so you might have this question. So Nick, what, how did Mark end? (laughs) I mean, did it really end with, and the women went away nervous? I mean, is that it? I mean, that's—I mean, it's almost like Mark's, like, writing along, and he realizes he's on the last page of his parchment, and he's like, I better wrap this up, you know? So they went away scared, and—period. <laughs> um, 
That's probably not the case. There's a bunch more other stuff I'm, I'm going to put on a video here that I think was helpful, but it'll, it'll gla- some of you are already glazing over, and this is even thicker, so I'm just going to go past it, and we're, it's almost time for potatoes. Um, uh, one of the scholars that writes on, com- comments on, Matt, on Mark's gospel that I found helpful is a guy named James Edwards. He's written a commentary on, on Mark. And one of the things he says is he says, um, Mark and Matthew follow each other very closely in a number of portions. And in, in Mark 16, 1 through 8, he's already, Mark is already showing that he's going to end this in Galilee, right? He tells the women, send the disciples to Galilee, and they're going to see me there. And the gospel that follows that same logic is Matthew, Matthew 28. And so it's, it's very likely that the original ending of Mark is virtually identical to the last verses of Matthew. That's the, that's the best scholarly view I can find. And that it was somehow lost. I mean, mind you, Mark was killed. Right? Um, and so it probably read something like this. Then the eleven disciples went into Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You see, a lot of early Christian fathers believed that Mark was a simplified version of Matthew. I don't know if that's true or not. Most modern scholars believe that, that um, Matthew was written after Mark. It's, po- it's, it's I don't want to say very, because we, this is speculation, okay, to a certain extent. But it's possible that the real ending of Mark got preserved in Matthew. So that in God's providence, even though the end of Mark got cut off, it was right there in the next book that grew out of Mark's gospel as the Holy Spirit was inspiring the canonical works to be written. And here, here's what I want to say about that, because you might, you might be feeling like, well, you know, I just wish it was cleaner than that. I mean, why didn't God make it all cleaner than that? Listen, just name something God does clean. Like, that is not how the God of the Scripture, that is not how our God works, right? I mean, he lets Jesus come in weakness and be killed, and then he vindicates him through resurrection to show how in his weakness— but in his faithfulness, God made him strong. And then the Bible comes along, and it gets attacked and burned by the Romans, and has to be hidden, and then it gets put together, and all these things happen, and there's all these copies, and it's, and then all, and then providence comes in a way and restores it late in time like this, in a really kind of neat way. And it, and out of that weakness comes this strength, that after 300 years of assailing the text of the Bible, scholars are just basically getting bored. And listen, it's the same thing with the church. I mean, think about the church. I mean, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, you know, not many of you are that smart or that wise or that good looking or whatever. But think of it, how in our weakness, God has made us strong. I mean, what? We take for granted that the church of Jesus Christ has existed for 2,000 years in every continent of the earth, in virtually every people on the earth. Why on earth would we have thought that out of 70 Bumpkin country Jews, an unstoppable power of redemption in the world would be unleashed for two millennia. God always works this way. And the encouragement you can take from this is not just that your Bible is trustworthy. The encouragement that you can take from this is is that our God is trustworthy. That the God who has called us to go out and preach the gospel to all nations, to learn to obey everything that he's taught us, and who promised us that he will be with us to the very end.
that that God has always worked this way. And that your weakness and limitedness and whatever and doubt and trouble and struggle and everything, that that is, that is something that God has always used to bring about his good purposes, to bring redemption to people, and to not lose those who are weak, but to hold them to the very end because he wanted to promise and has promised in many places, he will be with you. Just like he was with the scriptures, just like he was with the dead Savior before he rose. And so, here's, here's Holland. From the embarrassing part of the end of Mark that's in the Bible that shouldn't be in the Bible, believe in Jesus. From the very thing that you could look at with cynicism and say, that ought to embarrass you. When you see it in its full circle and how it comes there and how it comes forward and what it says about God and what it says about the Scriptures and what it therefore says about the Savior, believe in that Savior. Give your life to the one who is provided for you in these ways, who works greatness out of weakness, and who will be with you to the very end of the age. And then go and eat a potato filled with pork (laughs) and luscious foods. Let's pray together. Father, um, we know that this is how it all works. I mean— between meals and music, souls get converted and drawn to you, and we come together as a family over normal everyday things, and um, monks that could barely read copied the Bible in freezing rooms, and deserts where nobody wanted to live were wombs that carried your truth for millennia. And there are amazing things that you do through weaknesses in the byways that no one in the important world pays any attention to, but your plan is hidden and it comes forth like a seed in a great power. And Father, we come now recognizing that there was one greater seed that was planted in a tomb and came forward in all the power in the universe the risen Savior, and we open ourselves again, and we receive um, and believe, and we open ourselves to the power of your Spirit that comes through faith in Jesus. We thank you for saving us. Father, I pray that anybody who doesn't believe would open their hearts for you to save them now and believe in Jesus and follow him. And Father, we pray that you would, um, that you'd work in us as a family. As we go out and as we eat together and, and watch kids play and have a good time, Father, pull us together into the church that is also weak but that you have pulled through millennia and that you've still called to go and reach the nations and to obey everything you've commanded us because you'll be with us to the very end. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God for all.